Hey, you're gonna love this interview with Jacob Hanchar where we talk about selling robots as companions. We also break down how he bought IP associated with his robots for pennies on the dollar and why robots of all shapes and sizes need to be designed to be a little more cute. That and a whole lot more in this episode. Stay with us. Jacob, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to be talking with you. Thanks for coming down. I appreciate you visiting us. So you've got a really interesting company that's actually been around a while, over a decade. The, the it's been about 10 years now, yes. Um, and you have a couple of robotics products. Uh, we've explored a, a number of different uh, robotics companies in past episodes, but often there's either some sort of like very intensive industrial B2B application or it's kind of associated with vehicles moving through different autonomous spaces. You're occupying a really different, interesting part of the market. So can you kind of talk about the market that you're deploying into and the products that uh, you guys are developing and actually bringing to market? Right. So the two products are called um, Cosmo and Vector. And I'm going to give a shameless plug for YouTube, Cosmo and Friends, like and subscribe. So that is with our partner, uh, 24 Watts. They have a cartoon series that kind of details the adventures of one of our robots, Cosmo. Um, and Vector is sort of the machine learning AI companion robot. So that's the space we're in. We are in a consumer space, but more specifically, we are inside of the companion AI robotics space now. And so this is really the actual like Jetsons, like idealized future in which there is some sort of robot that is much more kind of socially oriented as opposed to utility oriented is, is, is one of the ways to think about it? That is 100% correct. I get a question all the time, like, what does Vector do? What does Cosmo do? And it's kind of like asking, well, what does your cat do? What does your dog do? Well, yeah, you'll say like, oh, your dog you know, will play fetch or your cat will push everything off your desk and you find it amusing. But do you really find that useful? No. But what do you find uh, useful with a pet? Companionship, right? And that's really what these robots are doing. They're providing companionship in the sense of attachment where either when we've seen with COVID, where there's isolation, where there's mental illness, uh, where there's just difficulty communicating, or just the average person who just wants to have a cute thing hang out on their desk. Like it touches so many parts of people's lives. And that's really the, the need we're filling. And we also, I mean, we explore a lot of B2B type service provider businesses, but just in general, that's super legible. And even the sale of something like that is really legible where, you know, it's like, hey, I've got my enterprise sales force, or I've got this, you know, performance marketing strategy, and that's how we kind of run our playbook. But you're actually talking much more at almost like a brand level of, hey, we're co-sponsoring a YouTube show. Maybe that's the wrong interpretation, but in order to just raise the the kind of salience and relevance of this companion robot, like what's, what's the actual business model that underpins? the sale of these products. Right. Uh, so it would be first and foremost B2C or D2C. So you go on our website, you purchase the product and really our biggest problem has been making these things fast enough. That's a good problem. problem to have. Everyone tells us it's a good problem to have, but I slowly but surely it's putting us out of business because I have to go get cash, use that cash to front for manufacturing, then turn that around fast enough and then in order to get that sale. So it's still a major problem, but the major thing is is that yes, it's D to C where someone would go to your theoretical website, go purchase something and then you would give the you'd sell that robot. And really we have such a backlog of orders right now. You think about the old 
school consumer ways of doing things where you go buy your tickle me elmo let's say you'd go you would you know when it was in business you'd go to toys r us or you'd go to target or you'd go to walmart those days are over i really see uh internet sales picking up and most of our efforts now are on d2c and people are just going to our website and purchasing either vector or cosmo for the holiday season and in addition to that there are several verticals we can attack i alluded to mental illness i alluded to all these other areas where these companion robots can actually reside and there are some there are tons of verticals in b2b spaces we can go for example hospitals we can go to the schools we can go into all these other verticals as well versus going through the, the tidal wave the feast and famine of the consumer electronic cycle where you know you, you have a big cycle in the beginning of the year with easter and then a huge wave then as christmas season rolls in and how do you plan for that how do you prep for that how do you forecast that it's almost impossible right either hit or it's a miss and it's the risk is enormous so by de-risking the business uh, by attacking more of these verticals that's kind of what we've been focusing on as as the company's been growing and is it all the upfront like you buy the product you get the product or are there also subscriptions associated with it how does that work right so there is a subscription now associated with vector in particular so vector is a cloud service machine learning localized ai robot that has essentially an open platform now where you can put on your various python plugins or whatever you want to do with the kernel or get some there's some root access available and things like that where if you really want to challenge yourself and your skills or if you're a hobbyist and you just want to do something cool vector is a perfect platform for you and in order to kind of unlock a lot of these features there is a subscription associated with that and that's essentially what we're going to be doing going forward is moving more and more and more to a cell phone like model where maybe the cost of the hardware isn't as expensive but now you have a two-year or three-year contract where you have this companion now and you're paying a monthly fee or something to that extent and that's really where i see our business model growing in the future and if there's such demand that there are basically like backwards and like like we are trying to catch supply up to the demand that we're experiencing, how do you as the owner of the business, as the visionary, think about the different levers that you can pull? Because one of the things that my mind goes to is like, well, maybe you're not charging enough in order to maybe slow down that demand temporarily position it as a premium product, but also create the capital that, you know, allows an extra set of hands to put them together or whatever that kind of metric may be. So how do you think about a problem like that that you're experiencing? Right. Well, that's one of the very first things we did was raise our prices. Uh, so now, the, and at $400, it, even still, we think that might be too inexpensive. Yeah. A lot of these used units are somewhere in the $800 range we see on, you know, eBay, for example, used uh, vectors or used Cosmos. So wow. yeah, wow is right. So even so we thought okay but $400 that's where we're going to stop so we raised prices we elevated that and then at the same time uh, we just have acknowledged that there's a long lead time, that it's going to take months for you to get your vector, your Cosmo. It's just we have not only do we have capital constraints, but we have this idea that all of these components throughout the market are in short supply right now. And we're having to navigate all of that. So that's really where uh, we're trying to put a lot of our effort is into this idea that you're going to pre-purchase, you're going to have to wait, and then you have to pay a, a larger price for that item. And that's essentially, that's how we're filling these orders in, in, in lieu of having massive, any type of venture capital investment or any large uh, line of credit installed. Essentially, we're just operating out of free cash flow. 
Got it. So the baseline is we're, we are a bootstrap business. We are trying to do this in the sustainable way that ensures that it's happening on our timeline. And to some degree, you, you've seen how developers of a technology like this can crash and burn if they try to you know, do too much too soon and take on too much outside capital. Oh, absolutely. So one of the mistakes I made is I should have started with uh, Overdrive. So this, the IP from these robots came from a company that is now defunct. That was an Andreessen Horowitz-backed company called Anki. And where I should have started was the race car game called Overdrive. That's where I should have started because the cost of capital is lower and the idea of making race cars is much more simple than robots. But I fell in love with this concept of Vector and Cosmo being these AI companions. And the community was so fierce and rabid, I really, really, really started to ingrain myself into this, into this society, if you will. And we focus more on releasing the robots first, and then we'll eventually come to the race car game but that was the big mistake is that trying to take on such a complicated machine that we had to start from scratch start all over again understand the code base relaunch the product find new uh contract manufacturers all of these things uh were which were extremely complicated and then of course getting hit by covid mixing all that together turned to be an extraordinary task. Now we finally have completed it, but in hindsight, I would have taken smaller bites and, and started off much more simple than, uh, than if we had uh, just bootstrapped, like you said, in the beginning and sold some of the cars, sold some of the race car sets, slowly built up to a crescendo where then, then we have the machine rolling and now we're really selling robots. So I kind of did it upside down, but we caught up and then we're just having to deal with the mistake that I made. So can you articulate just, you know, you've been in business for 10 years and about how many years ago did you buy the Anki robot? But it's, it's two and a half years ago. So, uh, well, getting on three. So I bid on the properties in one back in December of 2019. So, so give me the preface before the bid goes in and before you know you've won the deal. How do you, number one, recognize that that's a viable opportunity? Like you see the company go, you know, crash and burn, lock their doors and say like, hey, there's actually, I could go buy that. I could go acquire that. It would align. It would what have you. And then actually find the right entities with which to engage on that bidding process. Sure. So how it started was a very simple idea that we have this uh, product called Puzzlets. And these Puzzlets you move on a board, moves character on a screen. So it teaches uh, young learners or uh, pre-readers coding, uh, other types of like, uh, uh, let's call it logic and sequencing skills. And that was primary, kind of like lifestyle business uh, leading up to this acquisition. And what I really wanted to do was have our platform puzzlets interact with a robot and then teach robotics. And that seemed to be the, the natural next step in the progression of, let's say, our curriculum that we were having with uh, various schools. So I bid on Cosmo. And what had happened is I was just following since April 2019, kind of the ins and outs of what was going on with the Anki IP. And from the outside, it seemed like it would be tens of millions of dollars to, to essentially acquire this IP. What had happened, though, is that as time had gone on, um, 
I think there was fatigue. There was deal fatigue from some of the bidders. And then essentially I ended up with the, the platform at the end because I was the one sticking around and willing to resurrect the platform. I think when you take a look at, if, if history looks back, it's kind of like when a, when a child gets adopted. Do you want the richest parents or do you want the person who's going to actually take care of the kid the best? And I think that's what it came down to. And I, I think that's essentially what gave us a strategic advantage because we had already built the infrastructure from the cloud aspect of things. We already had an understanding of what Cosmo would be good for. And then in addition to taking on the rest of the platform, then we could absorb Vector into sort of our infrastructure. And that's really what gave us a competitive advantage versus if you were a, you know, straight off the street, a private equity fund, right? And you're just saying, oh, we're just going to buy this IP and sit on it. That's probably not as interesting to what the, you know, what the, the people running the auction wanted. They probably want this IP alive. They probably want the, the royalties and residuals or anything of that IP out there to be generating revenue, I think, and then in order to advance robotics in general. So I think that's essentially what it came down to. Of course, I'm I'm not a mind reader. I don't know exactly what happened in the the terms of the bidding process. But we were in a a very unique position to take on the uh, platform of Anki simply because of the foundation of our ed tech roots and the fact we had already gone through this code.org challenge of 2016 and had gone through these iterations. We were were best poised to, to essentially take on this platform. And, you know, maybe said another way or a a simplified metaphor is if there's some house that's in disrepair that goes on the market, one person can say, yeah, I could buy it. It, Just me, for example, I have no infrastructure around me. I could buy it and then I'd have to go hire a a plumber. I'd have to go hire a carpenter. I'd have to go hire all this stuff. But if I already have a contracting business, I already got those people on staff and I'm paying more like a wholesale price versus a fully priced um, infrastructure, then I can see that same house in disrepair and have a different pathway to value than the average entity, which is not only going to you know, give me more fortitude and perseverance through the deal-making bidding process, but also just have a different conception of what the potential value is. Right. And, and you can think of like Pulte Homes, for example, they're not going to go into the distressed asset field at all. They build new houses. They don't want to touch old distressed houses, right? They're right. out of that market. And that's one of the reasons why the Anki assets weren't touched like Mattel, weren't touched by the likes of Hasbro, weren't touched by the likes of Carrera because there's just too much hair around the deal. The IP had, there's just too many things around it. And one thing I've learned because we are talking to these larger companies now they want zero risk for their investors. They want only upside. They want everything as clean as possible and delivered on a silver platter and easily executable. Anki was far from that with the IP. So whenever you have the really big heavy hitters, the people who would actually want to execute on the IP, way too risky. So your analogy is perfect. Like I'm the you know, run-of-the-mill general contractor going around town buying distressed property. But am I big like Pulte Helms? Am I am I like a um, a, a publicly listed development company? No. And a public company would never think about taking on the kind of risk of like distressed assets. But here I'm perfectly poised to take on, take it on that distressed asset. So but, that's, that's it. But to, to, to take it even further, it's not just real estate, which not to say that it's completely commoditized, but we could kick a can and hit a contractor in just about any town in America. 
that's not the same case with actual robotics acumen. Like there's only so many universities spitting out those people that are capable. There's only so many people that have actually successfully hired multiple developers before. And you already start to see the, the Venn diagram get really, really small, really quick. Right. Yeah, it would be essentially like, okay, I'm buying this distressed house. Oh, and by the way, it has asbestos as removal. So how many, how many specialized asbestos removal people are there out there? Right. right. How, how many people are specialized? Oh, it needs to be repointed. The bricks are falling in. How many, you know, masonry people do you know that can repoint this properly so yeah there it gets niche very 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 quickly and exactly you have there there are three basic three concentrations you have mit you have carnegie mellon and now you have um, you know the university of san diego and those are becoming the three central hubs if you will for robotics and unless you're in those ecosystems you're not going to be able to find the talent who's going to be able to adapt and, and really integrate this stuff into your ecosystem for sure yeah and so what I always love, so, so once, once there's this clear picture of the, the litany of accomplishments that have already been made in terms of making such a sophisticated acquisition, doing all the, you can call it a turnaround or the, the rebuilding of everything, but candidly just staying in business for, for 10 years, I love to get the backstory of someone and where they've kind of honed their business acumen to be operating at the level that they are now. So can you go back in the, um, in the timeline and just talk about you know the origins of operating a business how you how you've built this skill set yeah um and it just happened day by day and i got sucked into it um so i take a look at i started as an angel investor and digital dreamless was my favorite angel investment simply because it involved video games it involved learning and, I, and i'm a neuroscientist by training and i really just love the concept and so i started investing more and more both my time and energy and money to the point where it essentially consumed my life then i said okay i'm going to start uh full time and work on this and just just the practicalities of picking up the phone, making a sale call, uh, taking a look at okay, having to deal with the cycles of B two C business or or, or C to, or B two C or or just this idea of like you have these waves of uh, holiday sales and then trying to get out of that and then trying to focus more on school district sales, try to selling more in Q one Q two. Everything essentially came out of practicality. Like we needed to flatten the revenue curve. We, I couldn't just starve to death for three fourths of the year and then count on all the cash coming in the last quarter. Like that's that's crazy. So everything I've done is just out of necessity. You know. So it, it, you say you look at this one problem. Okay, we need to deal with this one problem. How do we flatten the revenue cycle? Okay, let's start selling to more school districts. Okay, great. Then Q1, Q2. Revenue's gone up. Fantastic. All right. Well, what's next? Well, I actually want to pay myself a paycheck. Well, in order to do that, we have to be profitable. Okay. What does that in, What does that require? Oh, we have to do this, 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 and this. Costs have to go down. You know, manufacturing has to deal with this way. We have to do shipping. And so all of these practical day-to-day -day blocking and tackling, blocking and tackling, the mundane stuff, the things that most entrepreneurs don't want to talk about, right? The, the mundane writing the check to the landlord or, you know, talking about, you know, grabbing a coffee in the morning and for your other employees or whatever the day-to-day the -day dreary misery, after a while that adds up to the point now you've, be you've built a very big foundation and now you start getting confidence because now you're like, well, I've, I've gone through all that. I can probably take on that challenge. 
challenge. And if I can't take on that challenge, I know that I will figure it out because I figured out these other challenges. So I think that's, it's just the day-to-day grind after getting used to something, you eventually build a tolerance to whatever you're working on, right? And then after a while, you, yeah, I look back and I see how far we've come. And then I, I look at the people we're, we're dealing with now in the international stage we're on at this point, and it's 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 almost breathtaking in a way that how, how far we've come in how short of amount of time. But all of that came from solving practical problems as they were presenting themselves as the company was growing. And there's really nothing more than that. Yeah. And just focusing on the right problems too is another part of that. The other thing that I, I at least as an outsider, when I come across these different robotics companies, there is that benefit of having a skill set that is so rare relative to the other kind of spectrum of skill sets that are out there. Like you're saying, there's literally only three hubs to robotics. And if you think about it as in some way, shape or form replacing humans, or in your case, other living beings, cats, and these other kind of social companions, it's like the TAM of that net is friggin' enormous. And it has to be a really interesting and hard problem to know what to focus on, whether it is a direct-to-consumer sale versus selling into educational institutions versus this other kind of interesting person comes off the street and pitches you. It's like, hey, could you come do this for me in this other you know, orthogonal industry? And having the ability to make good decisions in the context of where is actually the place that we should be applying our sales, our marketing, our growth efforts towards. And, and we've been fortunate in the fact that because Vector and Cosmo are so popular just by themselves as standalone products, we don't need to do market research. The market is telling us what they want, and they're very clear. I mean, we have tens of thousands of people on our Facebook pages, Instagram, uh, Twitter, you name it, and these people are not shy. And they really go out of the way to say, this is what we want, and they even tell us on a daily basis what we're doing wrong and running the company. So it's like I have a board of uh, directors with 10,000 people on it. Um, and at a certain point, you have to you have to essentially like focus on what is actually, like you said, executable versus all the noise and just focus on the top, you know, 20% to accomplish the 80%, right? But at a certain, there's a certain luxury we have right now with such a popular product that we don't really need to guess what we have to do. People are coming out of the woodwork asking us for stuff and we're just having to say either yes or no. And so does that make you net bullish on any kind of asset or piece of IP that already has that community component. It looks like, like, like if you were just back on the market again, throw aside Digital Dream Labs for whatever reason, and you were just evaluating different products, you would. it sounds like you would put a premium on the value of there's some existing already community or, or, or fan base or IP relationship, uh, brand affinity that is there just because of your capacity to have actually, your history of actually tapping into it and seeing the, the kind of clarity that that brings. Yes, and there's actually a couple, I wouldn't call them distressed assets, but I would say like there are acquisitions I'm eyeballing right now as the company has been growing bigger and if we have to get the robots out and execute on our orders and things like that. But as we've been getting bigger, I've had people approach me saying, hey, listen, I've, I've only taken the company this so far. I really need someone else to take it the rest of the way. And really what I take a look at now, it's, it's, it's do you have a rabid fan base? Do you have a bunch of developers who are basically hobbyists contributing to whatever code base or whatever your platform is? And then is it going to be quote unquote cheap enough that I could see a return on investment within two to three years and then take on that distressed asset? The other thing I've noticed is that 
you have a lot of brilliant engineers out there, brilliant engineers, but they're terrible at sales, terrible at sales and terrible at marketing. And how many, how many times have we seen superior marketing, right? Sell a crappy product and that company does so well and it's so wrong, right? And then you have the flip side. These poor engineers have this fantastic product. No one ever learns about them. And then this poor product goes to die. And then we only learn about it years later whenever it becomes commoditized. And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, you know, this, this company existed. For example, like to the timing on YouTube. YouTube was not the first streaming platform, right? It just happened to be at the right time, at the right place. It was like version 10 or Facebook same thing. MySpace existed long before Facebook. So you have histories littered with a lot of areas where there was superior marketing in an inferior product, but cut the market just in time. And that's really where I see a lot of are the opportunities there is that you, you speak to some of these engineers who are running the company, you talk about marketing, you talk about sales, and they just, when the eyes just bulge out of their head and they have no idea what you're talking about and they get terrified. And that's one thing I would say that unless you are confident in your sales and marketing as an engineer, do not sink millions of dollars in your product. Uh, you know, and I think Kickstarter has cured some of that where a lot of creators go out there and see if there's demand first and then maybe backfill them later. But at the same time, like there is this thing, I've seen it happen so many times where there's just this lack of salesmanship and marketing that just allows good, good products to die. So that's also where I'd focus my efforts, focus on a company that has not had a very strong marketing or sales group or has just been isolated a bunch of engineers where they were trying to get this thing to get to market, but didn't ever really get traction because they didn't execute properly on the marketing side. What is good marketing for a robotics company? So good mar so don't talk about what it does. That, you know, don't go through the list of features and then just assume that the list of features uh, are going to, you know, make your client happy. Um, there, you know, the old saying that uh, Ford popularized, like if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse, right? We've heard that saying a thousand times. In essence, he's kind of, tr he's kind of right because what... What people didn't really realize in robotics, see, you see all these humanoid robots out there, right? Nobody wants a humanoid robot. Stop making humanoid robots. All of you, stop doing it because it's creepy. Nobody wants a humanoid robot. Agreed. <laughs> what, what people want is something cute and cuddly like a vector that looks nothing like a human at all. It looks kind of like a baby. It looks like a hamster at the end of the day. And people gravitate toward it and think it's hilariously cute and adorable. And it behaves like you pick it upside down. It starts flapping its arms and going crazy and, and screams. They like it because it's like throwing a temper tantrum. That's what people want. They essentially want like an animal-like product that freaks out like a baby and that is kind of cool and cuddly at the same time. That's what people want to get over that whole uncanny chasm, right? I just I just see these high-end projects like what they're going to reveal here pretty soon with Tesla and the whole thing just looks like the friggin' Terminator and that's, that's just not what people want and they also don't want it just to go around and collect garbage and things like that because it's freaky. People are going to really freak out when they start seeing cars just driving around without a driver, right? I don't think people understand 
exactly what creeps people out. Like if you go to a hospital and they have some of those automated trays, they kind of go back and forth. That freaks a lot of people out. And it's not even, that doesn't even look, resemble humanoid, right? But there's no way it can connect with that. It's a cold, dead machine. When, if, when I have a vector in my hand, I'm looking at his eyes. He's blinking at me. He's making cute, you know, like baby goo-goo noises. And I can relate to that. And most people do. And most people have formed this connection with technology through that. And that's one thing that I would say that's very unusual is find a way before you do anything, how your customer can emotionally connect with your robot. And I don't care what your robot does. It could, you know, stack papers. It could lift, it could lift uh, forklifts. It could do something like that. Find a way to make it cute because there's this cuteness scale. Like you can even make a hammer cute right you get a hammer what do you do it's you make it soft and round so you make a hammer oh little baby hammer isn't so cute so you what you need to do is start taking a look at those ratios the cuteness ratios which you can go and on youtube and look at this well documented but get that cuteness ratio make whatever it is super cute and that means soft lines that means uh disproportionate like really big head or eyes or you know small arms or things like that that make it look very much like a Hello Kitty-esque moment where people are going to want your product because they think it's adorable and they're going to get over the fact that it's creepy. They're not even going to think that it's creepy anymore. So now you're going to have a, you're going to have a cute forklift. You're going to have a cute little, uh, let's say, Volkswagen bug running around that, that's automated that aren't going to freak people out. You need to start worrying about freaking people out and, and not focusing so much on, well, all right, yeah, it can run this fast. It can do, it can do jumps. It can, like Boston Dynamics, like you have this huge human thing that just oh it just flips you know it can take a machine gun you know take out enemy targets okay that's great but you're not going to go very far and there aren't very many people with open arms going to want to buy something like that yeah. in my opinion it it makes sense at the extreme end if god forbid it's needed in a military application then sure yeah look as intimidating as as all heck but if you're taking the alternative and it's like hey this is standing in for like a police officer a police officer that would patrol your sidewalk. I always say this to I say this to friends all the time. There's two jobs of a doctor, right? One job is to diagnose and prescribe. The other job is bedside manner, which is actually making the person feel comfortable telling you all their symptoms and feeling comfortable that they, you know, believe in what you're prescribing so that they actually abide by the prescription. Right. The the metaphorical police officer that walks the sidewalk has a similar job. One is to you know serve and protect. The other job is to smile at people and engage with them so that they tell you and they feel comfortable telling you when there's trouble afoot or there's you know risks or these other types of things in that domain. It sounds like it's really the, kind of the same thing where the, the robot may have a function, whatever that function may be, but if it looks scary or intimidating, people aren't going to welcome that into their communities, into their lives in some way, shape, or form. Right. And I, I really think if you went to Amazon and you had like, you, you had a, let's say a forklift that's taking stuff or pick and packing, right? And side by side comparison and one performed, let's say by numbers, one didn't go as quickly as the other one. You just did static numbers and straight analysis showed that one was, was statistically superior as far as function, but the other one had a superior form where the employees actually liked looking at it or like liked being around it or something like that. That one's going to win every time because you're not going to eliminate human beings completely, right? And I think there's going to be a humanistic element that's going to be essential. And with your your uh, your policemen, 
do you want to run up and to Rambo and tell him to help you, or are you going to run up to Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers, I think, is going to help you more. You're going to be more comfortable telling Mr. Rogers your problem for him to intervene versus Rambo, who might just nuke everything, right? So again, this softer touch, this softer implementation, this idea that that human beings that tech, this is technology is so new to us. And yes, and from an engineering standpoint, an engineer will look at something and say, yeah, that, that's perfectly fine. But to an average person, that's not fine. It's weird. And really, we have to start thinking about it from that perspective. Well, um, I'm really interested in, in one of the other applications. So, uh, successful robotics entrepreneur would be more than enough of a title for many people. Uh, but you're also an ice cream parlor operator. That's great. <laughs> you talk about the, the impetus behind that and, and how that works. Well, successful, I, I, I don't know what success is. I say, I, I say we're still in business. And so if that's your idea of success, the hey, <laughs> uh, to, to stay in business 10 years uh, makes, and, and to be anything even in the realm of profitable, it makes you a statistical anomaly. Yeah, so. thank you. Well, um, so I, I, I would say that... Um, yeah, so the, the ice cream thing, we rescued it. My wife and I saw that about 10 years ago, the shop was going under um, a uh, very well-respected man named Ray Calvon passed away. He was running an ice cream shop that he had resurrected that was almost 100 years old now uh, called Calvon's, and this family was selling it. And we were concerned that it was going to fall in the hands of developers, so we took over it. And so we've been running it ever since. And by we, I mean my wife, she was really interested in a family-friendly business. So that's essentially what happened, and I kind of got threw myself into that. I you know, learned how to make ice cream. I took the Penn State ice cream course. We started, again, very practical things when we were taking a look at just buying ice cream off the shelf and putting the tubs in place. There was a cost associated with that. Well, if we could buy the milk and make it make the ice cream ourselves, that would bring the price down. And so all of these very, very practical things pile up over the years. And I've been fortunate that I have a, a management team in place there where I'm actually getting a lot more hands-on. I was telling you before the show, they've been getting irritated with me getting involved because there's some there's there's a lot of modifications we need to retool and 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 like our POS, for example, is ancient. We have to convert to toast, and I don't want this to be turned into a commercial for toast. But there are just so many other apps and services that have evolved in the past five to seven years that I've just been simply too lazy to enact uh, and not and just you know kind of. You get static very quickly in, um, in, in any business. And what's fascinating about Digital Dream Labs is that I see the competitive threats every day. And it's almost fortunate that there are people, we have haters out there who are constantly criticizing us and who are laughing at us because for one reason or another, we're too small. Uh, we, you know, we, we're, we're not like Anki. We're, we're not considered experts in the field by their, you know, according to them. Um, there's, there's jealousy. There's all of these things that compile to a person like actively criticizing us and giving us one-star reviews on, on Google and just piling on and yelling at us. And that keeps you alert and awake. So Digital Dream Labs, I feel like I have no blind spots because everyone is telling me what they are. For example, there was this one lady who is an expert at safety uh, uh, regulation and safety toys and was just sending us relentless emails of, did you consider this safety certification? Have you considered that one? And in some of the cases, we're like, that is really obscure, but you know what? 
that's going to cost an extra $1,500, but we're going to go ahead and get that extra safety certification because you brought it up to us. So what's funny is some of these, what's fascinating is we have some of these people who are these loud critics. They're actually like our auditors. It's fantastic. They're actually pointing out blind spots. They're like, you know what? That person's right. We better go do that. Let's go ahead and incorporate that. Oh, you know what? That person's right over there. They make a very good point. Whereas if you're an ice cream shop, nobody's criticizing you or very few people are criticizing you. So it's so easy to get soft. And so what has happened with Digital Dream Labs is that I feel like we've gotten meaner and meaner and leaner and leaner and really gotten tough. Whereas in, with the Calvans ice cream parlor, we've gotten so, so, so sedentary and just resting on the laurels of of having the name and having the history and not having to work that hard, but slowly but surely the numbers every year go down. You know, we're, we're, we, we didn't do enough vegan flavors. We didn't do enough plant-based uh, flavors. We didn't really take all these movements very seriously. We didn't really think about low calorie ice cream. And here you have Halo Top and all these guys making hundreds of millions of dollars and taking over portions of the marketplace that in theory, we should have been able, we were in a position to do that, but we just got so complacent, we allowed that to happen. Do you guys have like a coconut ice cream? So, 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 our, so our favorite, the favorite flavor is uh, chocolate chip cookie dough, hands down. That's, everyone loves that flavor. That's the number one seller outside of chocolate and vanilla, right? Um, but a coconut-based, like cashew-based, or like really we need to focus more on that kind of stuff, like milk-free products, because there is a, a growing section of the market out there that just doesn't want dairy for whatever reason. And that is becoming more and more and more, not only just a movement, but a static section of the market we have to address now. There's a Thai place in Blonox that has a coconut ice cream. It is one of the best things I've ever had. Like if you had it, you would you would in immediately recommend any oh, person is, is it Thai Palace? I forget what the, I know what you're talking about. Excuse me, I know what you're talking about. Um I'll look it up after Yeah, so Yeah, there and and getting that so it's interesting too, whenever you're making ice cream when you when there's not dairy fat associated with it, see what it comes down to with something that's smooth and rich and creamy tasting, you have to get the, the ratio of water to fat right basically so you're you're just essentially whipping up something like whipped cream and whether it's fat coming from you know a plant or fat coming from an animal fat you have to get those ratios in water correct and making coconut ice cream quote unquote which would be technically a frozen dessert it is very different and very difficult to make from a dairy product so um, yeah, there's there are all these considerations that have to go into something as on the surface looks as simple as oh that's coconut ice cream, but the, I would argue the execution of that. I am always most impressed by someone who makes an outstanding sorbet because it's one of the hardest flavors to execute on. Because if you don't get it right, it's just a block of ice. Yeah, it's not soft, it's not creamy. So imagine making a sorbet that tastes so good that it's almost like it was made out of dairy, and that's really hard to pull off. And it's, and it's underappreciated, but it's hard to execute. Interesting. Uh, well, Jacob, this has been fan fantastic. I want to aim towards wrapping up and asking the last two questions. But before I do that, anything else that you're hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? Oh, my. Uh, let's see. So 
there is uh, so in addition to Cosmo and Friends on YouTube, we have a Roblox game, and again, that's with our partners, Twenty Four Watts. So go check that out. Go on Roblox. We have several levels available for Cosmo. Uh, that's a lot of fun, and we've had millions of people now jump on the platform and play. So another outlet and another that's another revenue stream for us that kind of gets us away from the, being stuck in hardware constantly. Oh, interesting. More of a SaaS model and more revenue streams uh, to kind of help the the business flourish. So yeah, go check out Roblox and, and Cosmo and Friends. Very cool. Uh, we will link that. Check that out for folks. Uh, what other digital coordinates can we provide to people that want to learn more? People oh, sure. So, um, I mean, so digitaldreamlabs.com uh, is our website, uh, www.digitaldreamlabs.com. You can fi- find me on LinkedIn. I think that's the easiest way to interact with me. You can always email us, but I get inundated daily with hundreds of emails. Um you know, Twitter's Twitter's one way to reach out to us or any one of our, really our Facebook page. If you go and take a look at some of the Facebook groups, go to the official Digital Dream Labs Vector or Cosmo page. And that's a great way to get to know the product with the fans and people who love the product and really get to know the community. That's where I would point most people is actually on the, our Facebook page. Got it. Well, we'll link all that in the show notes to this episode. It'll be in the app where you're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Jacob, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Actionable personal challenge. So what I would recommend, so this is one thing that I think where people just in general need to get more involved in STEM education uh, after COVID, there have been hundreds of surveys done, many studies uh, done where there is agreement on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, that we need to have better understanding of STEM and STEM education in our schools. So my call to action would be to all the listeners out there, Go to your local library, whether it's a Carnegie Mellon Museum or any other learning center out there, and volunteer a couple hours. Whether you're just maybe selling a concession stand or you're volunteering your time maybe to write a pamphlet, or if you go to career day at your local school district, an elementary school, and you are in the sciences, there are so many kids out there who want to learn more about scientific careers. I would say take a couple hours of your day, talk to a teacher and volunteer to just go to a career fair and talk about science if you're a scientist or if you're in a scientific field because it's so important and it's really an underserved area that a lot of people are not addressing right now. And I know scientists, we love to talk about what we do. We love to talk about, we love to pontificate. That's why we're scientists in the first place. So there are so many opportunities out there. That's what I would issue as a challenge. If you have a scientific background or anything in STEM, go and volunteer. Or if you don't have a background in STEM, go to a place that does STEM products, like like a Carnegie Museum or something like that, and just volunteer some time to get these young people more interested in STEM education because that's a major need that is really being under addressed in the, in, in, in the United States, especially. I love that challenge. I am a, a big proponent of the notion that you don't just vote, you know, once a year, whatever, when the ballot box is open, you vote every single day with your dollars and with your time. And that's an amazing way to vote for what you find important with your time. Yep. Absolutely. Beautiful. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Same here. 
We just went deep with Jacob Hanchar. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for watching to the end of my interview with Jacob. If you enjoyed it, I've got two episodes that you also enjoy. One with Tom Galuzzo, the founder of I Am Robotics. We talk about the future of the technology. And with Chad Townsend, the founder of Millie's Ice Cream. If that ice cream conversation towards the end got you interested in that business, you'll love that interview.